Well, good afternoon. Um, as Richard said, we are in the middle of a little series. We're thinking about popular culture. Not, not an entirely normal thing to be thinking about in church. Um, yeah, the reason that we're thinking about popular culture is partly because we want to understand a little of the world that we live in. And especially because we want to be able to communicate something of the Christian, the the good news of Jesus, into the culture that we live in. We've entitled this series, What's the Story? Um, I think that was a song by Oasis, wasn't it? What's the Story? Or if you're a fan of uh, Balamori or Jackanori, you'll, you'll recognise the phrase, what's the story? But that phrase really sums up everything that we do in this series. We're, we, we're always trying to ask, what's the story in our world and what's the story with Jesus? And the more we can connect those two stories, the more effective our communication will be. Our evangelism or our attempts to share our faith with other people will always involve something of translation. Um, we, we had some foreign exchange students staying in our house recently from France. Um, I'm just trying to remember their names. Anne-Sophie and Pierre. I was going to say Peter, but that's not French, is it? Pierre. Is that French for Peter? Yeah. Anne-Sophie. And one of, one of the interesting things about those conversations was the comparisons that our kids were making, what do you like, what do you like and what happens in your school, what happens in your school and there's kind of translation issues going on and our our evangelism is like that isn't it we we understand the good news about Jesus uh, but we also want to understand the culture that we live in and there's kind of a what's your story, what's your story let's compare stories and let's kind of understand Uh, what we're talking about together. I think the reason that popular culture is so important is not because, we're not talking here about all liking the same music or all liking the same films or all reading the same books. The reason popular culture is important is because it gives us enormous clues as to where people's hearts are in our culture the things that resonate with our culture give us enormous clues as to where our culture is at. People's hearts, assumptions, aspirations, anxieties. So I suppose what we're trying to do is understand public culture from a biblical perspective. And we left things last week on an enormous cliffhanger. Um, And we promised that we would come back this week, so we fulfil that promise. Um, this is where we where the Bible story arc in many ways is very simple and uh, creation is amazing and good but sin and evil came into God's good world and there was a fall that was catastrophic and God's work in his world which is good but broken is to restore and redeem and to bring about a new creation that that upside down cave is a great simple way to understand the Bible story 
And I suppose what we're trying to do is look at popular culture through each of these lenses. So last week, we thought about what would popular culture look like through the lens of creation. And, um, and we, so I'm going to recap that a little bit just for two minutes and then we'll get to where the cliff was and then rather than fall off, we'll, we'll carry on. We started with the Trinity and we noted, didn't we, that God is love. God is relational. In a sense, God is the original community. He's not a lonely, bored, miserable, killjoy in the sky somewhere. Rather, he is awesome, vibrant, creative, and head over heels in love. Sovereign Lord, three in one. And that means that creation is not junk that is left over from some cosmic conflict. Creation is the overflow of his relational amazingness, if that's even a word. And the crowning glory of that creation are human beings made in God's image. And we saw that that image bearing involves at least three dimensions. And uh, we summed it up with this little diagram, didn't we? There's an upward, a sideways, and a downward dimension. As human beings image God, that involves worship, it involves relationship, and it involves the good stewardship. The way we portrayed this was that human beings are designed to manage and organize creation, to create order out of chaos, to create places to live within in that creation. Now, let, let me just highlight two important things before we move on with this week's thoughts. First of all, this image bearing clearly reflects the Trinitarian nature of God because God said, let us make man in our image. So these three things must somehow be reflected in God's nature. And so we saw last week that God too is worshipful in a sense. We don't often think of God being a worshipper. But each member of the Trinity thinks the others are awesome. And what is that if it isn't worship? The Father thinks the Son's amazing. This is my son. Isn't he fantastic? The son adores the father. There is an overflowing joyful love within the very Godhead. And in a sense, isn't that the essence of worship? They love one another. They admire one another. They rejoice in one another. And ultimately, the overflowing joy in God is this, isn't it? That he himself in his own being, is utterly gorgeous. Can we say that about God? He is utterly amazing. Unimaginably desirable. His beauty is breathtaking. And to know him is to enjoy him. And this God is relational. This joyful interchange only works because God's a trinity. God loves to give and receive He's a God who communicates. He's creative. And the second thing we, we, we saw, that, that, that 
idea of the environment that when, when God said let us make man our image and then he said to Adam be fruitful subdue the earth and rule over it respond to what I've given you by making something out of it and isn't it true that God in his creative activity is doing exactly that creating order out of chaos his whole creative activity is really to provide somewhere for people to live he makes a stage for the drama of this relational duty to unfold within and isn't that true of us too as God's image bearers we're trying to make sense I, I, I don't know I don't, I don't, we, we don't really kind of go into the woods and make a little hut to live in do we we, we sort of buy houses and have mortgages but there is a sense in which we're not just talking about making physical dwellings but the whole point in popular cultures we'll see is that we're, we're creating meaning to live within and that's kind of part of the creating order of chaos as well isn't it there's a metaphor there so this is a good way too to understand popular culture not just the trinity but culture too in God's perfect and amazing world doing culture will reflect God's brilliance it will enhance human relationships and it will help us to create meaning I've written down here culture should involve the wow of the upward we talked about that last week that wow is a shared experience just as it is in the Trinity it is good for people to nudge one another and go isn't that what worship is corporately and this cultural activity creates meaning that would give texture and purpose to our lives so here's a little definition of popular culture that I made up with some help and it's not very academic but I hope you think it'll make sense wow look at that popular culture in an ideal world is about a shared wow that creates meaning that we can together live within. Does that make sense? And it's a circle because it kind of it's, it's a cycle of shared meaning. A shared wow that creates meaning for us to live within. This is what life was intended to be and this is what popular culture would look like if it wasn't for the cliffhanger that we left last week. Let me, um, I just want to read a paragraph or two. Um, some of you will know that some of the things that we're looking at are based, I don't, I don't ever want to be accused of plagiarism. And uh, the, this book, Pop Apologetics, has been a good influence for me, for Rich, uh, for Rob, who's not here now. We, we went to hear this guy who wrote this book as part of the course that we were doing. Let me just read to you um, a paragraph uh, this is what Chad uh, Chernoff says this is how culture was supposed to function we human beings would find ourselves surrounded by God's creation a creation that sang with the revelation of the glory of God we would intuitively understand that music and would respond to it by developing cultural stories and artifacts and practices 
that would join in that song by glorifying God, loving other humans and caring for other creatures. And further, these cultural products would themselves take on the character of Revelation because they were made by God's image bearers and made from his creation. So culture would join in the music of God's praise and inspire others to make more, to add to and improve on that music. Think of a succession of jazz solos in which each soloist is inspired by and builds on the previous one. It would have been incredible and excellent, a spiralling cycle of virtue and glory that would continue forever. What an amazing picture that is. That culture making in God's ideal world is kind of like an amazing jazz performance where every solo is better than the last one. And the whole thing is just an increasing cycle that glorifies God. This is what life was intended to be. And perhaps what popular culture would look like through the eyes of God's amazing, imaginative and colourful creation. That's where we got to. But it isn't like that, is it? It isn't. It isn't an increasing, amazing jazz cycle of praise that glorifies God. And that's because sin and evil have come into God's world. So, what I want to suggest to you today is that popular culture still works like this. It's still a shared wow. And it still creates cycles of meaning for us to inhabit and live within. But it isn't done to God's glory. It's a kind of twisted distortion of what it would have been. And so our second biblical lens is what's the story with the fall? Okay? So I'm going to leave that diagram because we're going to change it as we move through. Sin and evil have entered God's good world and it distorts and mixes up this whole kind of process. How do you define what sin is? That's a good question, isn't it? Um, is sin a little harmless piece of indulgence? Um, well, I, I don't know if some of you old ones remember this. When I was a child, there was an advert that used to appear on TV for cream buns. And there was an actress called Pat Coombs, I think her name was. And she would be like biting into a chocolate eclair and all the cream would go everywhere. And she would look right into camera and she would go, it's naughty, but nice. Do you remember that? Naughty, but nice. I, that's some people's view of sin, isn't it? It's naughty, but nice. It's a little bit of harmless fun, isn't it? I was, I was just Googling this during the week. I came across a perfume website that had a perfume that was called Sinful Indulgence. It's a little bit of harmful something or other. It's not that serious. It's a bit of fun. Some people might define sin as breaking the rules. And I just want to linger with this uh, thought. There is some truth in that, but it's not the whole story by any means. Here's one problem with that assumption. If sin is breaking the rules, then that would mean that salvation somehow consists of keeping them again. But that ignores the fact that it is possible in life to do the right thing for the wrong reason. 
doesn't it? We instinctively know that sin somehow involves more than just morality. Jesus, of course, reserved his harshest words, didn't he, for people who were doing the right thing. What did he say to the Pharisees? You like tombs that are painted white on the outside, but inside, full of dead man's bones. You can look the part, you can behave well, and yet miss the essence somehow. So sin isn't just morality or external behaviour. It does seem to have something to do with the heart as well. I want to suggest to you that the foundation for a biblical view of sin starts with God being love. There's a great book. We've been thinking about a trinity in our, in our groups during the week, haven't we? And Mike Reeves, head of theology at UCCF. I presume you know Mike Reeves. Phoebe works for UCCF. Mike Reeves wrote a recent book on the Trinity. And let me just quote you a sentence from that. He says, what went wrong? It wasn't that Adam and Eve stopped loving. They were created, after all, as lovers in the image of God. And they couldn't undo that. They were created to love, in other words. What happened was, instead, their love turned. And uh, Mike Reeves quotes a passage uh, later on in the New Testament. Let me read to you from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Paul writes to Timothy, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy without love unforgiving, slanderous without self-control, brutal not lovers of the good treacherous, rash, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness but denying his power do you see what's going on there? people will be, they won't stop loving they're still loving because they're made in God's image to be lovers but what's happening is the focus of their love is being twisted. And Reeves continues, lovers we remain but twisted, our love misdirected and perverted. We are created to love God, but we turn to ourselves and anything but God. So Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden and, and Adam's wasn't just breaking a rule. The problem was that she loved the fruit and what she thought it represented more than God. And what happened wasn't that love had suddenly stopped, but that it was misdirected. It isn't that worship stopped, but its focus has changed. This is really important, isn't it? Because if that's true, it actually means that every single human being is a worshipper. You might not be a religious person, but because you're made in the image of God, deep down in your life, you will be worshipping something. That's very interesting, isn't it? And here's a little side view. We, took, we, we said if breaking the rules is all it's about, then 
what would that mean for salvation? If, if sin is about our love for God being twisted and diverted somewhere else, that then means that the answer to temptation to sin is not moralising people or trying to encourage them to keep rules and try harder. The way to overcome temptation is to be captivated by something superior to the sin that's tempting. For you to change, what needs to happen is for your heart to be captivated by something greater than the thing you're currently worshipping, isn't it? That's very different to moralising people. What needs to happen is for your values to change. And that's a different game entirely, isn't it? Well, that's just an aside. We could talk about that some more afterwards. Let's talk then about sin's distortion of culture. The diagram that we had up on the screen, God's creation is good. Culture was meant for worship, but now is redirected towards idols. And I I don't mean totem poles and little statues. What I mean by that is instead of glorifying God and his goodness, culture now is redirected, twisted, away from glorifying God. And what does our popular culture glorify? Self-expression, beauty, youth, money, sex, power, the things in creation that we were meant to master and enjoy now become addictive and they dominate and master us. And the second thing, culture that was meant for relationship, and I I think this is really interesting, we can talk about community all day. What's really interesting when God squeezed out the picture is that cultures kind of veer towards extremes, don't they? And they either become super exclusive, you can't join in our club, or they go to the other extreme and say, we don't care, anything goes. And they become super, super tolerant, and there's no kind of uh, morality or, or, or values. So we might say on one level that community disintegrates into either exclusion or apathy, But the other issue is with communication, isn't it? Communication that was designed to build each other up, to encourage, to be truth-tellers, is now used to destroy and tear down, to manipulate and to exploit. And a culture that should master creation instead begins to greedily try to exploit it. And isn't it significant, instead of making order out of chaos... All we ever seem to do is repeated cycles of producing chaos of the order. And it's kind of the wrong way around. Um, Andrew read to us from Romans chapter 1. And I want to turn there briefly. If you've got a Bible, we'll just have a little, very quick walk through some verses here. Page 1128, if you've got one of the church Bibles. Um, I asked Andrew to read from verse 16. Because what's significant about that is Paul's pride in the gospel, the good news. Uh, he, he effectively says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What he's really saying 
is I'm really proud of the gospel. And why is he proud of the gospel? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And he's talking about Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. And the whole book of Romans then begins to unfold this good news. But what's significant is the place where he starts in his explanation of the gospel is verse 18. Which is not very happy. He, so I'm going to talk to you about this gospel that I'm really proud of. I'm going to puff out my chest. I'm so pleased and proud of the gospel that God's given to me to declare to you. Let me begin by talking to you about the fact that God is angry. I mean, he's writing a letter here, isn't he? But if that was a sermon, I wonder how many people would get up and walk out. Can you not talk to us about God's love? He begins with God being angry. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of man who suppress the truth by their wickedness. How, how are we to kind of deal with a verse like this and how is it relevant to what we've been saying about popular culture? The Bible says that God is love. And that is very foundational. And it is, part, it is God's essential nature to be loving, but it's not the whole story. When the Bible talks about God being loving, it doesn't reduce God to a sort of sentimental grandfather, inoffensive figure somewhere. No. When the Bible says God is love, because he loves, it matters to him when things go wrong. And his love really is the foundation for his wrath. And when we think about the diagram there on the screen, God cares about the fact that this vibrant, joyful, harmonious creation is screwed up. And it matters to him. And because he is loving, he is angry about what sin and evil does. It is almost as if God's handiwork, someone has come along and graffitied it all over it. Last week I parked my car in a side street. We went to some friends for a party one evening. And I parked on a side street on the side of the kerb. When we came back to the car, it was dark, got in the car, drove home. The next day, went back to the car in the daylight. And there's a huge scratch from the back of the car all the way to the front. So someone, while we were in the parties, walked on the street with a key or a coin and just gone. And I've got to tell you, I was angry. Does that mean that I don't love my kids? Or that... How, is that incompatible? The reason I was angry is because my lovely car had been scratched and damaged. How dare someone do that? Mindless thuggery. <laughs> is it right to feel angry about that? What, what is that? I don't want you to think that God is soft He's awesome. 
Think of someone who has fire in their eyes because of some injustice and then multiply that by infinity, if that was possible. Joy, I'll tell you afterwards if it is. And you still wouldn't get close enough, would you, to the good, wholesome, settled anger of God against evil. He loves what is good and he hates what's rubbish and evil. And his whole being is just... That's horrible, and it makes me angry. It isn't that he's super critical. It isn't that he has a bad temper or gets out of bed the wrong side. His anger is the natural outworking of his passion for what he loves, isn't it? When he sees what is good and lovely and true and wholesome, graffitied and scratched, when he sees evil come along and go, it makes God angry. And should it make him angry? Of course it should make him angry. We don't want to worship a God who goes, ah, it doesn't matter. That kind of God wouldn't be awesome. The problem is, though, as we get into Romans, that we know deep down that we don't really want to face a God that is angry with this and with us. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of man who do what? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may, be, what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. What is going on here is that the, the, the real issue is that we make idols as an avoidance strategy because we don't really want to face God as he is. And Romans here says that that's exactly what people do. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of their mortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. What Paul's saying there is that this God is really scary. But if you make a little wooden one and put it on your mantelpiece, that's not going to hurt you, is it? You made it from some wood in your shed. How's that God going to cause you a problem? Can you see what's going on there? There's an avoidance strategy. And this great exchange is to cut God out and replace him with something else that's easier to manage. Life's easier. And we don't really want to face what's really there. Ultimately, we do have to face what's really there. And the whole essence of the good news of the Christian gospel is that it's possible to. And we'll get to that. What happens in Romans? The most frightening thing in this passage 
is that God gives people what they want. And three times in chapter 1, in those verses that Andrew read, it says, God gave them over. They, they cut God out and replaced God with something else. And God says, okay, you can have that. And, and God just, I, I suppose that is part of judgment, that God allows people to have what they really want. And in general, that is a destructive cycle and Paul details this in a very extreme way in chapter 1 of, of addiction, of relational breakdown sexual confusion, futility and when you look towards the end verse 29 to the end of the chapter could be today's newspaper couldn't it? this is written 2,000 years ago they've become filled with every kind of wickedness evil, greed, depravity they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice they're gossips, slanderers, God-haters insolent, arrogant, boastful they invent ways of doing evil they disobey their parents they are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless could, that could be this morning's Sunday people or whatever the paper is on a Sunday read the news and it's right there what is amazing here is the fact that we are still imprinted with the image of God and we are still by definition pre-programmed to live in a certain way to share wow moments and for those moments to create meaning that we live. The problem is that we use the machinery for the wrong thing and instead of that cycle glorifying God it cuts God out and idolatry replaces God. And that means that when we look into popular culture and we, and we try to see the meanings that are there, what they often are is a distortion. There's some truth there, but it's twisted, warped. There's denial there. Instead of a jazz cycle of praise, it becomes, as Paul says, a twisted cycle of misplaced devotion that turns in on itself and shrivels. When we look into popular culture, we need to be asking, don't we, what is the idol here? What is being promised here as the solution to my problems? What is being proposed here as the secret to my fulfilment? What is being suggested here as the answer to my needs? And what good created thing has been promoted or elevated to become an ultimate thing and a substitute for God himself? I want to suggest to you that when we look into popular culture, we have to realise, first of all, that all people are made in God's image and that none of us have stopped loving or worshipping the issue is, what do we love? What do we believe is important? And the question always has to be, not how many swear words are in this film, but what's the story behind this film? From the perspective of the fall, that question means, where are the idols that people are worshipping? Well, God's creation is amazing. The fall 
is an enormous, twisted catastrophe. And you'll have to come back next week to find out what God has done. No, we can't leave it there. You can't hear all the bad news and then have to wait a week to find out the good news. I'm only kidding. So let's close with this and then we'll elaborate next week. I was really thinking about this during the week and I just want to give you a couple of verses to encourage you, to inspire you, to provoke you and maybe even for some of you to give birth to faith for the first time. Let me give you a verse from the Old Testament. This is something that the prophet Jeremiah said and I think this, when you think of popular culture think about this this is God speaking my people have committed two sins number one they have forsaken me the spring of living water number two they have then dug their own systems broken systems that can't even hold water can you see what's going on there God looks into his world and sees human hearts that shake their fist at him and say, we don't want you, the life giver, to be our king. We'd rather shut you out and find satisfaction over here. They've swapped the life-giving goodness of God for something else. That is the essence of idolatry. And that is God's critique of their hearts what is this loving God's response to that good riddance get lost you blew it you had your chance or, or is it what they need to do is try harder I'll crack the whip no God's response amazingly is the response of a loving father and what does God say to a culture that is spending all of its energy pursuing dreams in the wrong place what does a loving father say to people who do that let me read to you some wonderful words again from the Old Testament Isaiah chapter 55 this is what God says to you and I come isn't that a great first word come come all you who are thirsty does that not sum up human hearts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? And why spend your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I hear you say but what about God being angry 
<laughs> You're right, you haven't forgotten that part. But this invitation is based on God putting aside his anger by sending his lovely son to swap places with you and me. His love is so great that he pays himself the price of our foolishness so that we don't have to fear his wrath but we can embrace him as the loving father that he really is. Do you need a saviour who can put things right? Jesus is the saviour. He is himself the richest of food. He is the bread that satisfies and the water that refreshes. Do you struggle with sin? He, he is the one who can capture your heart and displace all the rubbish and give you a superior love that makes other things fade. Popular culture would be great if it weren't for the fall. A just cycle of praise. It isn't like that because sin and evil twists our affections. And what does Father God do? He sends his son to be our saviour. The wrath of God is being revealed. And yet this Father God has turned away his own wrath in Christ so that we could come home and be refreshed by his loving embrace. So let's pray, shall we? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are an awesome God. We thank you that you have created such an amazing world and despite the entrance of sin and evil into it you are still a loving father who has sent his son to be our saviour and we thank you too for the powerful life giving work of your spirit who brings Jesus near to us and makes him real and inclines us to put our trust and faith in him we thank you for what we're learning about popular culture and we pray, Lord, that you would inspire and stir our hearts to see the idolatry in our own hearts and in the hearts of people in our culture and we pray, Lord, that we wouldn't hide from it or dismiss it or trivialise it but that we would speak your truth into it and that we would echo your great invitation come, come to me and delight in the richest of fear we pray that you would inspire our faith warm our hearts help us Lord to trust you and not mistrust you we pray Lord that you would loosen our grip on the idols that often captivate our hearts even though they shouldn't we pray that you would give us such a sense of your awesome greatness that other idols would be loosed 
from our grip and fall away. And we ask this in the glorious, powerful, precious, and great name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.